0: Welcome back to On The Record this Sunday lunchtime. Gavin Riley with you for the rest of the hour. Time for our regular slot of Hidden Histories. Now, last week, it was confirmed that the first statue of 2019 to be unveiled in Dublin will honour Luke Kelly on Guild Street in Dublin's north inner city. And Luke Kelly remained something of an enigma, a name and a voice known to almost every Irish person, but someone whose views, values, private life are more and more obscure by the passing of time. Uh, he was obviously a brilliant musician, sometimes controversial character, but his contribution to the revival of folk music here was almost unrivaled and he is the subject of yet another edition of Hidden Histories, joined by Donald Fallon for another edition. Donald, good afternoon, good how are you? Good to be here, good to be here. Um, Luke Kelly was actually Luke Kelly Jr. Yeah. and by some degree he was even lucky to make it into the world at all. Yeah,
1: had, had a bullet gone slightly to the left, there may never have been uh, a Dubliners. The Luke Kelly Jr., there's a degree of luck in this story. There were several bloody Sundays uh, in 20th century Irish history, mm. four, four too many. But the Forgotten One uh, happened in 1914 on Bachelor's Walk in Dublin when soldiers from the, the king's own Scottish borderers opened fire on a, on a crowd of largely innocent Dubliners, angered by the fact that the Irish volunteers had armed themselves that day at Hote, the famous Hote rifles, mm. and marched into Dublin bedecked with them. And one of 50 people wounded that day was a nine-year-old called Luke Kelly, who was the father uh, of the folk singer. So, I mean, the Kellys are right there at the heart of Irish history. And it's a reminder of the effect one stray bullet could have had, imagine, on popular Irish yeah, culture. Yeah. But I think you know, at, the, at the outset, it's important to say here, I don't think there's any voice as iconic as Luke Kelly's in an Irish context. And while the voice was fundamentally Irish, and not just fundamentally Irish, it was fundamentally Dublin, it was fundamentally Mm. Northside Dublin, the influence of it was truly international. And in many ways, you know, Luke Kelly... Is part of the Irish diaspora story. And we come to that we come back to that an awful lot on this slot. And mm. uh, the songs that he learned, I mean, they came from the folk clubs and the political discussion groups of English cities. They were borrowed from the civil rights movement of the US. And next year marks the thirty fifth anniversary of Luke's passing and this unveiling the unveiling of a new monument I think makes it more than fitting to look forwards, you know, as well as back yeah, it, uh, on this it, slot. It today. is remarkable actually when you pointed out that his voice obviously was so quintessentially Dublin, but it's a
0: very twentieth century story that he wasn't just living within his own realm, that he understood the stories of what was going on.
1: Absolutely, Absolutely, as, as shaped by Birmingham, Alabama as Birmingham, England and by what was happening in the world in his day. Um, there was some confusion around exactly when he came into the world. Yeah, we know exactly it? when he left it, but when he was born has been <laughs> disputed. He landed in the world definitely. Uh, I think in November 1940 but the quote the excellent Dubliner scrapbook it says Luke was born in Dublin on either the 16th of November or the 16th of December 1940 the confusion arises because his mother says November and his birth certificate December in the main Luke has always taken his mother's word for it for the reason that she was there at the time which <laughs> <laughs> puts it very well That's good first hand evidence Isn't fairness. it just? I mean, She would know and and the family were as inner city as you could be you know Latimer Cottages was just off Sheriff Street eventually the corporation had to pull them down and they moved them into the Lawrence or Tool flat so right in the heart of the inner city and the pattern you know, the familiar pattern of inner city working class life kicking a football off a wall growing up there but no work to do and making that very short leap uh, across the sea to England he went in 1958 instead mm. a teenager and that was kind of transformative and you know it, it may sound like an oxymoron of sorts but Luke Kelly going to England was one of the greatest things that has ever happened to Irish music. Uh,
0: that's probably then because nineteen fifties England, where he went over there, and you're talking about Birmingham, England, Birmingham, Alabama. It was such a, a cultural and diverse oh, and political melting pot. There pop, was so
1: much going on, you know, in England at the time, and I mean, England had its own problems in the fifties. I mean, we think about this as some some mecca Britain that you just went over there, yeah. And there was someone waiting. That's where the jobs were. Someone was waiting at the airport or at the at the, uh, at the port to give you a job. It didn't work out like that, you know. And he arrived and he worked in Birmingham and Wolverhampton on building sites along with his brother Paddy. But from the very beginning, I think you could tell that he was developing politics because he sacked from a site within a few months of arriving there looking for higher pay. And in his own words, he says, my interest in folk music grew parallel to my interest in politics. So if you're an Irish person in, in 1950s Britain, the political milieu is, is kind of diverse. You know, you have your anti-partition leagues, you know, organisations that could mobilise a lot of Irish people, but were kind of fundamentally quite conservative, and quite Catholic, very Gaelic, you know, in their, mm. in their views. You had the, uh, the county associations. We still have some of them, actually. If you ever, in London on St. Patrick's Day, you see them coming in Longford yes. and Mayo and yeah. the like. And they were largely apolitical, but there, there was still a kind of nationalistic thing going on there. And then you had bodies like the Connolly Association, you know, an organisation that was considered so dangerous that Catholic handbooks for young Irish immigrants going to Britain advised against having any contact with them. (laughs) And that's where Luke fell. You know, he was selling their newspaper, the Irish Democrat, and flirting politically with what was called the Young Communist League. And he seems to have been a very interesting thinker. I mean, George Darwin Thompson, who was an English classical scholar and a Marxist, he was so impressed when he met Luke Kelly that he offered to finance his university studies. And Thompson was someone who taught himself the Irish language, he used to come over to the Blasket Islands all the time to hear mm. it. And he had a deep grasp for Irish tradition, you know, and contemporary radicalism. And I think he recognised something in Luke immediately. So Luke was mingling in circles that were considered quite dangerous, you know, yeah, for a young I'm Irish just, migrant.
0: struck by that, that someone called him George Derwent Thompson, who doesn't sound like he has a Fenian <laughs> phoen- bone in his body. A very but he unlikely really... He yeah. I mean, kind of
1: created Gweldgar of yeah, his, his well, own kind. there you go, they all count. Um, it was Ewan McCall, though, that shaped Luke uh, Kelly Jr the most the single greatest influence over Luke and a massive influence over Christy Moore and many other people was Ewan McCall and we hear his daughter's voice now everywhere we go if you walk through a shopping centre this month you will hear Christy McCall she takes over our airwaves every December and Ewan was was an amazing character I mean he was the one time partner of Joan Littlewood the theatre director uh, who first brought Brendan B. into the stage, later Peggy Seeger? And I think he saw, I don't think it's, it's an exaggeration to say, Ewan McCall saw folk music as a weapon of war, you know, in this great class conflict. Mm. And the time under Ewan's influence was transformative. I mean, McCall is the man that wrote Dirty Old Town about Salford. Growing up, I was always convinced that song was about Dublin. Yeah, I, I think you're just
0: so attached to here, yeah. I, I, everyone, I only know that from my times going over to Old Trafford, which
1: is near enough to Salford, yeah. and only
0: discovering when you get over there.
1: That yeah. has that link. And you'll never meet a Man City fan in Salford either. It's about as red as they come. But this song about Salford is so deeply associated now with the Irish folk revival, largely thanks to McCall's influence on Luke. And the accounts of him singing before English audiences are great. Niall Tabin, who was there, said, He came out and he sang Rocky Road to Dublin while playing the banjo. Then he put the banjo down like a rifle and sang quicker and quicker and quicker. Nobody understood a word, but the place went bananas. He took the banjo up, he played a few chords, and he sang in the most melodic, beautiful tone, Peggy Gordon, and the place erupted again. When he was on form, there was no folk singer better than him, either today or then. Nobody came close. That's just before we listen on, let's have a quick listen to you and McCall.
0: I found my love on the gasworks croft, dreamed a dream by the old canal, kissed my girl by the factory wall. Dirty old town, dirty old town. It's funny just the, the overlap between like Shannon style and, and North of England stuff. that 's almost indiscernible sometimes until you hear the sound being described at the mm. end. And um, Eventually though, uh, Luke Kelly's uh, magical transformative music uh, began to make its way back over it here. did well.
1: and I think because of the the high volume of kind of what we might call Irish diaspora traffic and if you go to Dublin airport this week or next week you'll see it's still, it's mm. still a factor life. Anything that took off in Britain eventually made its way here. And by 61, you know, it was booming. The Abbey Tavern, the Embankment, the Royal Marine, they were all just packed out. But it was at the International Bar in 1962 literally around the corner from where we are at the mm. moment that Luke encountered Ronnie Drew for the first time.
0: And, and Ronnie Drew remembers how two of the, <laughs> yeah. how different the two were
1: that it was very unlikely people who were seen to be so joined at the hip musically speaking yeah. were two very different a, men. A really beautiful interview with Ronnie Drew I think Vincent Brown did it not long before his passing and he talks about meeting Luke and he says I met Luke in 1962 and in a strange way we got on from the word go we're both of a similar mindset though coming at things from a slightly different viewpoint of politics and music. Luke had a far finer voice than me he could have been a very good singer in any arena in my case, I hadn't a good voice, but had a certain way of putting a song. That's a beautiful <laughs> that's way of describing himself. Appreciating yeah. Ronnie Drew had a certain way of putting a song across, which kind of got me going. I mean, there's no doubt about it that Luke had the actual musical voice. But beyond musical differences, Ronnie remembered that quote: "Luke was the communist." I didn't quite agree. I used to ask him why if communism was so great, why did so many people want to get out of communist countries? <laughs> and he, he used Fair to point. get yeah. he used to get very annoyed. But the name of the group, I mean, the Ronnie Drew Ballot Group, in it yes, originally. Yeah. Uh, they settled on a a much better name, I think, which was a nod towards another Dubliner. Uh, At the time, Luke was reading James Joyce, the collection of short stories, Dubliners. And they just had something about them. There's something electric about that band. And I think when you listen to their records, they had the ability to capture both... The politics of Luke and just the great crack of, 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 of other people. Mm. So, you have a song like Alabama 58, which is deeply political, you know, about the, the civil rights movement in America. And then you get your Seven Drunken Knights. And it's that ability to swerve in and out of deadly serious teams and issues uh, that gave the Dubliners that mass appeal. And the Clancy brothers had it in America, but the Dubliners had it in Dublin. Mm.
0: Uh, and of course, there, a lot of the, the places that they were known to perform, of course, were the drinking houses of yeah. Dublin and the drinking was pretty intense. I mean, the,
1: the, the, the nostalgia and the wasn't a great crack around drinking this country is something that I think is deeply worrying and deeply wrong because so mm. many of our greatest talents were lost to drink and the drinking was absolutely atrocious. I mean, Ewan McCall and other people were so worried by it, they actually travelled to Dublin. And I'm always struck by what Joan Littlewood said about Brendan Behan. She says that, you know, when Behan died, I was so angry. I wanted to come to Dublin just to kick his coffin. You know, this was one yeah. of the, the greatest talents that yeah. she'd ever encountered and he, he drank himself into the ground. And there was also the fear that people like Luke could drown themselves uh, as well and he was incredibly social. I mean, the pubs were the centre of the social life of, of, of the Dubliners. And like other people around that scene, Dominic Behan, a young Christy Moore, you know, he really, really grappled with that problem. And pubs don't sell many pots of tea <laughs> then, no. then or now. And Erdinger, non alcoholic was still a distant dream. So you know, if you if you were in that traditional music scene, the drink was a massive, massive problem.
0: Yeah, and um, there were other great loves though too. Like culture in its broader sense, it wasn't just really about the music. And
1: just like Brendan Behan is is always you know this characterization of a heavy drinker and nothing else. Luke was not just that. I mean, he had a great graph for culture in every sphere of life. He loved the theatre about performing on stage and observing it. He loved football. He had a great graph for football. I mean, in the inner city soccer controlled everything and he yeah. befriended uh, the great late Con Hoolan I think the finest Irish journalist of all time and despite very real political differences I mean Con was very much anti-nationalist they bonded over a love of football and his accounts of Con bringing Luke to watch his beloved uh, St Patrick's Athletic football club I'm with sorry, him,
0: a Northsider. Yeah, it's very rare. It's very.
1: The uh, fans will not like hearing no, that. No, tried to put Bob Marley in a jersey uh, a couple of months ago and didn't get away with it. A him. true Northsider. Maybe we could put Luke Kelly on one. But yeah, he went to the Odd Pats game uh, in the company of Conhula. Um The decline was pretty sudden, though, and he was very open about his difficulties in the. Yeah, it, wasn't he? But the curtain was coming down. You know, by the by the by the seventies, his health was in serious decline, and in those final years, he talked very openly about the issues around alcohol. And when he was diagnosed with a brain tumour, he had a number of collapses on stage. And very tragically, he tried to keep going, you know, he just tried to keep going when he really should have stepped aside. And eventually he did have to step back. And the funeral was enormous and the headstone is beautiful. It just says Luke Kelly, Dubliner. So I think it's more than fitting that a statue should go up now in Dublin's northern city of all places. Mm. And it is difficult to think of anyone else who's had the same impact on Irish popular music. But it was a funny life, you know, this disciple of Karl Marx who <laughs> became a musical favourite of Charles Hawley. And to give the final words to Ulick O'Connor, he said that the first words he would open with in a song gave him command of his audience. It was a compulsive sound as if the harsh winds that snake up the Liffey had found their way into the human voice to emerge transformed by melody. Only Ulick could put it so that well. That is a poetic way to put it. Fabulous stuff.
0: Uh, Donald, thank you very much uh, as ever. Donald Fallon, the author of the Come Here To Be blog and book volume two. Which will um, look excellent under any Christmas tree you got the plug in there before I even got a chance to do it myself uh, Donald thank you very much as ever uh, that is it for me today Off the Ball is up next here on News Talk my thanks to today's production team Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan Peter Molloy was on sound um, to play us out who else but a little bit of Luke Kelly for you now as Donald has said he's coming back to greet his fellow Dubliners once more early next year in the north side. this though is his last ever performance not long before his death this is a live recording from the Late Late Show a track chosen by the man himself apparently as his own musical epitaph this is the night visiting song. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.